What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. So would you say you got a better shot at them going in and not so much coming out? You could say that. I did say that. Would you say that? Chester and I paid for his lawyer's condo in Aspen and my lawyer's condo in Maui. They're very happy. They're going to trade once a year. I would love to sue them. Only it would mean hiring another lawyer. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice, the Super Friends... Welcome to Opening Arguments, the podcast that breaks down the law behind all the news stories you care about. This podcast is sponsored by the Law Offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Hey guys, I'm Liz Dye, with me is Andrew Torres, and this is Opening Arguments, Episode 856. Hey Liz, how you doing? I am okay. I am uh, enjoying a little little bit of a long weekend, so that's nice. How about you? I'm doing my best to do the same. I know same is true for you. My child was home for the holidays and goes back to school as this episode comes out, and I will miss them. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. It's I'm down to one kid at home again and Ugh. That sucks. But okay, yeah. let us not dwell. We have uh, we have quite a lot to talk about today. Yeah, we're going to cover two stories. I d- <laughs> it's going to be a Trump-heavy episode. We're going to do a little bit of a roundup of all of Trump's non-Georgia litigation. And then we're going to head to Fulton County. You probably have heard by the time you are listening to this about Fonnie Willis's appearance uh, on Sunday morning at a historic church in Atlanta, Georgia. And we're going to tell you what that means for the prosecution of Donald Trump and his 14 co-conspirators. All right. But first. (laughs) But first. So we've spent a lot of time on the show talking about the hearing at the D.C. Circuit on Trump's claim that the president enjoys a magical cloak of immunity for any and all (laughs) crimes committed in office as long as he's not impeached by the House and convicted by the Senate before he leaves. Remember, that's that's the SEAL Team 6 argument. Yeah. And as Judge Florence Pan pointed out, the logical end of this argument is that a president can corruptly abuse the power of his office up to and including sending SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival. And so long as the Senate is feckless and does not convict, he gets off scot-free. Well, you mock, but... What about the issue of the immunity case uh, going before a three judge panel? Arguments were held earlier today at times based on reports I read. It almost seemed to go off the rails asking, or what if the president uh, uh, instructs SEAL Team 6 to kill innocent people? Uh, you know, w- w- would the president be acting in his capacity as the president of the United States? Would they have immunity? That seemed to go off the rails. I understand two of the three judges, a three-judge panel, were Biden-appointed judges. That's that's correct. I've actually been in front of a judge in New York and been asked the same question on the Michael Cohen case. I won that case on immunity. Um, it's hypotheticals that do not currently exist because the real facts are so easy to win that we have to now argue the slippery slope argument of if he kills someone, will be he be held accountable? He didn't kill anyone. He didn't cause an insurrection. He didn't get charged for it. But they're using hypotheticals to frighten America. This is a slam dunk no. case. He should have an absolute immunity and presidential immunity. Well, I should say I have no idea what she's talking about with respect to winning a Michael Cohen case based on immunity. <laughs> the best I can guess is that this has something to do with a civil suit filed by Cohen to recoup the money that he paid to defend himself in the Mueller investigation because he was an employee of the Trump. Like it was some kind of business expense or something. I, I have no idea. I, I mean, she argued immunity in the Carroll case and she lost. And Trump tried to assert immunity in the New York state prosecution for the Stormy Daniels payoff laundered through Cohen. And 
Trump lost that claim to. I have no, I have no idea. What Has Halba ever won anything? I mean, not that I, I know. I mean, of. she might have won a round or two, but not. No, I, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we are awaiting. <laughs> we will hoist the mission accomplished victory banner when she does. <laughs> I mean, she did manage to get Trump sanctioned again because she sued the New York Times on his behalf for publishing documents from Fred Trump's estate that she was supposed to keep confidential according to uh, an agreement she signed during litigation over Fred Trump. That's her grandfather. That's Trump's father's estate. And she lost that case that, that Judge Joel Cohen of the commercial division in, in New York State Court dismissed the New York Times and the three reporters out and uh, in, and indeed forced Trump to pay almost $400,000 in attorney's fees as of this week. So I don't know. Her, her, her record is, is not great. <laughs> anyway, we are awaiting a decision from the D.C. Circuit, which could send the election interference case back to Judge Chutkin at the district court. Yeah. And I not only think that could come this week, I mean, you know, to be fair, I, I thought it could have come as early as Friday. This, uh-huh. It's going to be 100 pages long, but, you know, like, those judges work hard, right? <laughs> judges Henderson, Penn, Childs, they have moved lightning fast to get this case briefed, heard. They're doing everything they can, right? Yeah. And that may be dramatic setup for, unlike Judge Eileen Cannon, Federalist Society weirdo in the Florida documents case who took advantage of the holiday weekend to uh, dump an order on the docket in the middle of the night on Friday night, saying that she's going to, you know, put off ruling on the government's entirely ministerial request Mm -hmm. to require Trump to disclose a thing he's been saying for years, that is, whether he intends to assert an advice of counsel defense in that case. So, Again, just to underscore the legal position here, if you intend to defend yourself by saying, I didn't have the requisite criminal mens rea because I asked my lawyer and my lawyer said it was totally cool. In order to do that, you have to introduce your communications with your lawyer. You have to waive the attorney-client privilege, right? And if defendants were allowed to just, I don't know, show up and do that at trial, that would be too late for prosecutors to do things like review those documents, depose your lawyer, you know, prepare for the case, right? So the way in which this happens is you are required to disclose that reliance in advance, and then the government gets to request documents and and depose your lawyer. Right. And to be clear, Judge Eileen Cannon herself has always adhered to that rule that defendants have to say before the trial if they intend to assert an advice of counsel defense. Oh, I, I know she's only had like four criminal cases, but, but really <laughs> one of them had an advice of counsel yeah, defense? Yeah, that's why wow. in one of their briefs they, they cited to her forcing a, a defendant to disclose. I This is why I love doing the show with you, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> so look, as we've said, Trump has announced since day one that he intends to rely on that defense. But like, that's not legally admissible in court. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. Trump says crazy shit on Truth Social, right? You're not going to be able to pierce the privilege just by saying, well, Trump said it and John Laro said it on TV. So, you know, ipso facto. Right, right. And, And look. I am all for courts maintaining a very high and very thick wall of separation that, you know, protects attorney-client privilege. But, you know, play by the rules here. So anyway, Judge Cannon denied the special counsel's motion for disclosure uh, without prejudice. So, you know, that that at least means that Jack Smith can raise it again in the future. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and and her reasoning was it's apparently premature. I mean, I, Liz, riddle me this one, okay? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Judge Cannon says, such a request is not amenable to proper consideration at this juncture prior to at least partial resolution of pretrial motions, transmission to defendants of the special counsel's exhibit and witness lists, and other disclosures as may become necessary. That kind of feels like someone gave Judge Cannon a word a day calendar for Christmas, right? Like, but look, <laughs> yeah. it is further evidence that she does not intend to hold this trial in May. She's just squatting on the calendar and preventing anyone else from trying Trump in May, June, July. Yeah, convenient. Yeah, convenient. But in the meantime, in D.C., Trump's lawyer, John Laro, continues to chew the furniture. 
he's he's taking the bonkers <laughs> position that the stay pending the decision by the D.C. Circuit makes it illegal for the special counsel to provide discovery, much less file motions. The special counsel responded to that motion for sanctions last week in a two and a half page reply that was basically like, eh, quit your bitching. You don't have to read it or answer, you know. You're such a flopper. And then Lauro <laughs> came back in the middle of the night last night with another shrieking pile of word vomit, charging the prosecutors with politically charged invective and character ins- assassination, which is amazing since more or less at the very moment that they were filing this document, Trump was posting on True Social that Judge Chutkin was an Obama left wing activist judge who openly admitted she's running election interference <laughs> against Trump. And, you know, he's oh, yeah, we just, other we nasty just shit that. too. Yeah. <laughs> So Laro screamed some more about Smith coordinating with the Biden campaign, and he pointed to stories about the investigation as proof that the prosecutors are cahootsing with the media to kneecap Trump. It will never, and I mean this sincerely, not be weird to me how Trump's lawyers can just make stuff up in their court filings, right? Like they will cite to any random article and say, look at this proof that Biden is directing the prosecution, never minding the fact that, you know, you you don't cite uh, articles in your in your legal pleadings. And they often say the exact opposite of what Laura claims they say. To be clear, Joe Biden has absolutely nothing to do with this prosecution. right? Right. But look. As a threshold matter, I I don't understand why the parties keep briefing this issue in the absence of instruction by the court, right? Like, there is no minute order from Judge Chutkin saying, please brief Laura's stupid and doomed motion for sanctions. I mean, I I guess to answer myself, right, like, she's not doing anything during the stay so as not to hand Trump a jurisdictional argument on appeal. But look, I guess we will find out her thoughts when the D.C. Circuit rules, which again— presumably later this week. Yeah, I agree. But one thing we do know is happening this week is the second E. Jean Carroll trial. Woo! Yeah. That involves the statements Trump made about the advice columnist in 2019 when her book came out accusing him of sexual assault, as well as some later statements he made after he lost the first case. They can't keep suing him. He does keep repeating all of these things. In fact, he he did it again yesterday. But anyway, Judge Lewis Kaplan of the Southern District of New York has already granted partial summary judgment with respect to defamation in light of the jury verdict in the first trial. So in plain English, Trump cannot say that he never met Carol. He can't say the attack didn't happen. He can't say that his denials are not defamatory. And all that's an issue here is basically how big a check he's going to have to cut. And thanks to several discovery rulings, he's not going to be able to introduce a bunch of irrelevant shit that he'd hope to get in here, like the fact Mm -hmm. that Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, paid some of Carol's litigation expenses or that George Conway introduced Carol to Roberta Kaplan. That's Carol's lawyer. Or, you know, the stuff about that dress, which remember, there was this dress that she wore the day of the attack. It has male DNA on it. She asked like four years ago for a DNA sample and he's refused to give it, except on the eve of the first trial, Trump's lawyer, Joseph Takapina, leaked to the media that Trump was at long last willing to submit to the DNA test. And he wanted to introduce to the jury that Carol no longer wanted it. And and that wasn't allowed. Obviously, you can't like spring new evidence five minutes before the trial. So uh, the court said no on that. And the court has already blocked all of these things. Yeah. As you point out, if Trump is involved in the litigation, there will be last minute bullshit. Right. But I have to say, in the interest of fairness, that part of the blame here falls on Judge Kaplan, right, who Uh waited until January 9th, just a week before trial, to rule on a bunch of evidentiary issues. So, you know, in some sense, he's partially responsible for the fact that the parties are still, you know, wrangling about the admissibility of witnesses 40 hours before jury selection. Yeah, totally agree. But let's talk for a minute about the two other issues which cannot be blamed on the judge because the witness thing that they're arguing about whether whether Carol's friend, her name is Carol Martin, can be called to testify. That's a little weedsy. And we'll just it, wait it until is. the court rules and, and we'll we'll walk you through what happened. The first issue that's live here is one of scheduling because Melania Trump's mother, Amalia Naus, died this week and her funeral is on Thursday. So on Friday afternoon, Alina Haba reappeared. She had not been, you know, filing motions in this case. In theory, 
She's like the yeah. legal spokesperson for the Save America PAC. But anyway, um, Alina reappeared on Friday to request the, quote, minor accommodation of a one-week adjournment so Trump can grieve, in theory. I, I never thought that I would say Alina Haba is more reasonable than Chris Kyes, <laughs> who requested three weeks of bereavement leave in connection with the, uh, the funeral of Melania Trump's mother. But um, That was in the I, civil fraud trial. Yes, yes. (laughs) But look, I cannot imagine in the abstract, in any case in which I've ever been involved, will be involved, like no matter how acrimonious it is, in which counsel and the court would not agree to that request, right? Like, so uh, welcome to another, you know, first Donald Trump. Okay. To be fair, Trump has acted like an asshole in this case for four years and has already delayed it many, many, many times. Yes. Um, But putting that aside, let's be clear. Federal judges have a packed calendar. I did try and look at Judge Kaplan's calendar online and it didn't it wasn't readily apparent on the Southern District of New York's website. But it is not at all clear that the court could just push this off a week. I mean, we are talking about an experienced federal judge. He just had the Sam Bankman Freed fraud trial. He's got you know, he's got shit to do. Number two, Double the federal judiciary. Yeah. Trump does not have to attend this trial and, in fact, did not attend a single minute of the first Carroll trial. And that wasn't during the primaries. So to say it has to be postponed because he has a conflict on Thursday is asking a lot since it's pretty clear he's going to wander in and out of this trial at will and maybe not show up at all. Yeah, that's right. And again, all of this is a function of Trump's years of bad behavior. So, you know, if you're don't take legal advice from a podcast or anything. But if you'd like to be able to take off for a funeral that occurs unexpectedly in the middle of the litigation, don't be an asshole throughout the litigation. OK, wait for it, because th- there's going to be a big asterisk here. <laughs> so first, Carol responded in, in two letters. In the first letter, she said, if every witness but Trump is done on Wednesday, the plaintiffs don't mind continuing the trial until Monday. But mm-hmm. she so, you know, she says we can take off Thursday. That's when the funeral is. But she p- opposes postponing the trial because, and I quote, Ms. Carroll and our other witnesses are prepared to proceed as scheduled. On Tuesday, a jury pool has been assembled and substantial security and other court preparations have already been made. Any delay would be severely prejudicial, particularly as Mr. Trump is near certain to assert scheduling conflicts again, including in connection with the January 23rd New Hampshire primary, all while continuing to repeat on an almost daily basis his defamatory claims about Ms. Carroll. And as someone who reads Trump's true social feed can confirm. Okay, And then in a second letter, she pointed out that although Alina said that Trump would be, quote, traveling to be with his family on Wednesday and could not be in court, he's actually scheduled to speak at a rally in Portsmouth, New Hampshire at 7 p.m. on Wednesday night. Uh, All right. Let me let me amend my (laughs) non-legal advice to, to add and don't request bereavement leave when you're on the campaign trail. That may be narrowly focused, but, you know. I, I yeah, I mean, one of, after, after Kai's requested that postponement so that because Trump was in deep mourning in the New York civil fraud <laughs> trial, his client did appear at the town hall with Brett Baer and Martha McCallum, you know, the one that he yep. counter-programmed to, to the Nikki Haley-DeSantis undercard debate. So, like, you know, he's full of shit. All the judges know he's full yep. of shit. Okay, so Judge Kaplan refused to postpone, although he did agree that he'd continue the case if everyone but Trump testified by Wednesday. He basically granted Kaplan's, you know, caveat motion. But that brings us to the second issue, which is that Carol wants restrictions on what Trump can say on the witness stand, particularly in light of the stunt that Trump pulled in Justice Ngoron's courtroom last week. Right. Remember, Justice Engeron said that Trump could only present part of his closing if he agreed not to shout insults and irrelevancies. Trump didn't agree and then, without permission of the court, stood up and shouted insults and irrelevancies. And to all appearances, he did it with the connivance, with the planning of his lawyers, including Alina Haba, who's in this case, right? Because, right, remember, Trump didn't start yelling at the judge until there were about five minutes left on his side's allotted time, which sure as hell looks like a bet that the court was just going to let him run out the clock rather than, you know, restrain him or have him removed from the court. Right. You know, some folks threw a little shade our way that we covered Trump (laughs) shenanigans, right? That we, that we fell for it. And, and to be fair, we are guilty as charged on that, right? Like, but yes, this does help explain some of our thought process, right? Like, because 
Now you understand how that's being applied, right? The New York civil fraud trial was a bench trial. And Liz, as you pointed out in that segment, there was no jury to contaminate, right? Like, you know, all Justice Engron was doing was, you know, exposing himself to irrelevancies and he could probably factor those out. Mm -hmm. Here in the E. Jean Carroll trial, there is a jury and the court has already granted a boatload of motions in limine to exclude improper arguments, improper or highly prejudicial evidence of the sort that, you know, you just mentioned, right? Like, And so if Trump, as everyone expects, shows up and manages to shout those excluded things in the presence of the jury, as he has said on social media that he intends to do, it absolutely could prejudice the jury pool. It could result in a mistrial. Like, you have to shut that shit down. Right. He's burping, as I said, about E. Jean Carroll today, including talking about her dress and complaining that he's not allowed to tell the jury that she's a gross person who called her cat vagina. I swear he he, he burps this every time. He, it's so weird. Anyway, none of that's remotely relevant. I think vagina relevant. is a tremendous name for a cat. But well, anyway. so did she. It was like some kind of, I don't know. I don't remember the whole name. Anyway, in the first trial, Trump's competent lawyer, Joseph Takapina, made damn sure that Trump did not show up in that courtroom. And for his yeah. pains, Trump trashed him on Truth Social and said it was like a mistake for him not to show up. Now it's just Alina Haba and Mike Badayo, although I think that their like 12-year-old associate entered his appearance last week. I, I don't know. All I know is that I was like, oh, some real lawyer has entered his appearance and I paid for nope. it on Pacer. And I was like, oh, it's the associate. Anyway, these people are not in the business of restraining their client for his own good. So I, I think that Carol's right to be worried. So- yep. On her behalf, Roberta Kaplan, that's Carol's lawyer, filed a letter motion Friday requesting that the court impose, quote, certain prophylactic measures and curative instructions, citing the possibility that he will seek to testify and the associated risk that he will violate court orders if he does so, which, yeah, no shit. She says, in fact, it is not clear, at least to us, what Mr. Trump could permissibly testify to given these limitations. There is no basis for Mr. Trump to offer lay opinion testimony about the harm that Ms. Carroll has experienced. Because remember, the only issue remaining here is one of damages. Going on, any testimony that he might give with respect to his own common law malice for purposes of punitive damages would have to be consistent with the court's rulings regarding actual malice, a needle that Mr. Trump's recent filings and public statements, which are rife with continued defamation and false denials, strongly suggest he could not thread. Because the scope of permissible testimony that Mr. Trump could offer is very narrow, and because there are any number of reasons why Mr. Trump might perceive a personal or political benefit from intentionally turning this trial into a circus, we are deeply concerned that Mr. Trump will pay no heed to the court's recent rulings. Indeed, Mr. Trump himself has promised to do so. Yesterday, after the court's evidentiary rulings on January 9th, he expressed at a press conference his intention to do exactly what this court ordered him not to do. Quote, I'm going to go there and I'm going to explain I don't know who the hell she is. And to be clear, no. No, he is not going to. Right. You're not getting away with that shit in federal court. All right. And before we get to our main story, it's a Monday, so it is time to shout out our all-time greats, our Hall of Famers, over at patreon.com slash law. Okay. Thank you to Nola Superman. To sit in solemn silence in a dim, dark dock in a pestilential prison with a lifelong lock awaiting the sensation of a short, sharp... There we go. A-C-R-O-N-Y-M, a criminal regimen of nasty young men. Andrew Slaughter, Jen Miller, accredited sorceress of ChatGPT. Oh, hey, hit us up. I would like to learn how. Going on. I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. Watercolors and the Tim. I never learned anything by being right. Roger Elliott. J. Zachary Pike, author of Orconomics and other funny fantasy books. Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer. 13th century Saxony gave me COVID, or maybe it was 21st century Saxony. Time no longer has meaning. <laughs> Sir Arcane. Scott, the former libertarian, now voting to oppose an existential threat to our republic. Supergiant robot. Real juror in a real weird rear wheel drive. Greg Frostum, <laughs> LD19 Arizona House candidate. Oh, hey, nice. Woo! Hey, good work. Vote Greg. E.G. Schempf. Trent Barstad. Surfer rugby player lawyer in that order. Ian Horswill. AI car wash name, auto-official intelligence. I get it. <laughs> Which wristwatches are Swiss wristwatches? I forgot to change this. Andrew will come around on the cranberries. How can you not like the cranberries? Come on, man. The MILF, formerly known as Zippy. Uh, 
this is somebody's name. And just to be clear, we'll read it. Flatten Gaza, vote genocide, Joe. Eric Stratton, vote third party unless and until Biden stops vetoing UN calls for ceasefire and ends ethnic cleansing in Gaza. Jim Kitchen, the exhibits in Smith v. Torres are wild. And Liza Green. And thank you to Joseph Vigiano, I'm Fast at Sex, Loaf of Orange, Cajun Killa, Hot Spears Ode to a Small Lump of Filibuster I Found in My Armpit One Midsummer Morning, Fraud, Fishy, Hates Everything, Chris Simpson, Catherine Cannell, Liberals Own Guns 2, Support Root Cause Mitigation, Not Ineffective Gun Control, Lily Needs a Puppy Treat. This isn't a Patreon name, and I'm not reading anything right now. I just personally think Legal Eagle <laughs> is so handsome. Hey, plug whatever you guys want here i don't listen anyways patreon benefits rule fame and fortune guaranteed in the state of Kentucky. supreme court justices should have 18 year term limits and so should conrad michaels edgy veggie elect thomas smith president american honky tonk bar association vasectomies prevent abortion jason copas i've really tried to understand them but i still don't get the they's well it's okay i can it's just say be keep right. at it yeah that's right Please don't read this on the pod. We don't need a call out. Thanks for what you do. RondaTheDork.com, Greg Grimer, the one and only Teresa Gomez, and our all-time great Mitchell. And if you'd like to join their ranks, you know how to do that. Head on over Patreon.com slash law. Sign up at the $5 and up tier, and we will read you out every single week. Okay. And that gets us to our second story, the pending criminal RICO case against Donald Trump in Fulton County, Georgia. And if I might start with an anecdote. Oh, like- Nice. 20 years ago, when I was potty training my kids, I asked my extremely Baltimore plumber about those supposedly flushable tushy wipes. Uh-huh. And he said, and I quote, I ain't going to sugarcoat shit, hon. One day you're going to flush one of them wipes. It's going to cost you $5,000. Um, and I <laughs> stopped flushing the wipes and appreciated the honesty for sure, as, as did my pipes. And I hope that you will feel the same appreciation for some honesty here because we regret to inform you that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis fucked up bad. Yeah. So we have talked about Donald Trump's nationwide coordinator for the fake elector scheme, Mike Roman, filing a motion to dismiss the Fulton County RICO indictment on the grounds that Fonnie Willis is in a relationship with Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor hired by her office and paid almost $700,000 to date. Roman filed this motion more than a week ago, making explicit reference to Wade's sealed divorce proceedings. Roman's lawyer, Ashley Merchant, asked the court to unseal them, but she still hasn't cited to any of the direct evidence of the very specific financial allegations in that motion to dismiss, which, you know, okay, the divorce is under seal, but like she could have included an affidavit in her own name that said, I have seen X document that says Y thing. That's not admissible at trial. You can attach it to a document, right? But what it's worth, friend of the show, Andrew Fleischman, has told us that Merchant is a respected lawyer in Georgia. Right. And we've been holding off on this until we knew more. We, we didn't want to talk about this brief. In fact, I told Andrew twice, like, we're not doing that. We're not, you know, whatever. But we said on air that the longer it took for prosecutors to issue a firm denial, the worse it looked. Uh, And to be clear, using public funds to pay a romantic partner who doesn't have appropriate experience to try such a high profile case would be extremely problematic. And even if it doesn't wind up with this case getting dismissed. And we have the greatest respect for Norm Eisen, Rich Painter and Joyce Vance, who penned an op-ed in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution saying that, you know, even if true, this isn't a big deal. But look, you know, ain't going to sugarcoat shit. If District Attorney Fonnie Willis took lavish vacations with her boyfriend after securing him a contract with the state worth hundreds of thousand dollars, it's a big deal and it's bad. Okay. So today, Fonnie Willis spoke at Big Bethel AME, a historically important black church in Atlanta. And I think her speech is pretty clearly a confession that she is or was in a relationship with Wade. Mm -hmm. God, you did not tell me that people would call me the N-word more than they call me fine. You did not tell me as a woman of color, it would not matter what I did, my motive, my talent, my ability, and my character would be constantly attacked. You did not tell me that the people would think they required of me perfection and flawless. God, why would you send this imperfect and very flawed woman 
to that position. Okay. She then went on to say that she had hired three special prosecutors and paid them all the same rate. So why was she only being criticized for hiring the black man? But dear God, are you listening? Why does Commissioner Thorne and so many others question my decision in a special counsel? Lord, your flawed, hard-headed, and imperfect child, I'm a little confused. I appointed three special counselors, is my right to do? Paid them all the same hourly rate? They only attacked one. I hired one white woman, a good personal friend and great lawyer. A superstar, I tell you. I hired one white man, brilliant, my friend, and a great lawyer. And I hired one black man, another superstar, a great friend, and a great lawyer. Oh, Lord, they gonna be mad when I call them out on this nonsense. First thing they say, oh, she gonna play the race card now. But no, God, isn't it them who's playing the race card when they only question one? Isn't it them playing the race card when they constantly think, I need someone from some other jurisdiction in some other state to tell me how to do a job I've been doing almost 30 years. And she went on to make an explicit parallel to Martin Luther King in the lead up to Martin Luther King Day. She said, King's journey was full of mistakes. Some of y'all might have forgotten that scandal that the FBI tried to do on personal indiscretions, they alleged. But now that same FBI will take a day off to celebrate Dr. King. You cannot expect black women to be perfect and save the world. We need to be allowed to stumble. We need grace. We are all flawed sinners, unworthy, imperfect, damaged. But we are qualified upon his calling. And I, I would say we are all flawed sinners, and we all do indeed need grace. And we do not all live up to our ideals, but two things can be true at once. It can be true that the right has reacted to District Attorney Willis in ways that are explicitly and implicitly racist. It oh, yes. <laughs> it can be true that Republicans target black prosecutors in black cities, you know, because of for racist meaning. And it can be true that Willis's home gets swatted, that she gets racial abuse hurled at her, that she has to work twice as hard to prove herself as a white man. All of that can be true, and I, I'm sure that it is. And yet, this is still a massive cluster that risks undermining this case. And, you know, as your friendly Baltimore plumber, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Claiming that you are being targeted on the basis of race and then pointing to the two white prosecutors you hired but didn't sleep with is, I'm going to say it clogs my pipes. So, Roman's motion was designed to put those salacious details first and foremost. But essentially, it breaks down into three parts. The top-line request for relief is for dismissal of the criminal indictment in its entirety against Mr. Roman on the grounds that the entire prosecution is invalid and unconstitutional because the Fulton County District Attorney never had legal authority to appoint the special prosecutor and, you know, fraud, fishy, hates everything or whatever, right? The second part of the brief Roman argues that Willis and Wade should be disqualified from continuing to prosecute the case. And, you know, if, if it's what it seems to be like, that's a much stronger argument. We're going to get to that. That would not make everything void ab initio, right? Like at most, the implication would be that this case needs to be turned over to prosecutors who are not tainted by an apparent conflict of interest, mm -hmm. right? And I need to add, part three is truly silly. I'm just going to read the caption, which is, Willis may have violated 18 U.S.C. Section 1346, the federal RICO statute, by failing to disclose her conflict of interest. And I, no, you, you do not have to be an opening arguments listener to know that covering up a relationship is not a federal RICO crime, even if all of the allegations are true. Like, right. I, I, I don't think we need to say anything more about that argument because it's very, very dumb. But like it does go to show that this motion is, you know, as I said, maybe not written by a crazy person, but it's the kind of motion that a crazy person would write. It is a way to raise salacious, very right wing talking points. Yeah. So there was a hearing on Friday on, on other motions, including one where Rudy Giuliani's lawyer got royally spanked. Very funny. We'll talk about it. 
probably next week. But the defendants lost all of those kind of motions to dismiss. And there were there were no direct questions about this motion, but Judge McAfee indicated that he would calendar the argument about Willis's supposed conflicts for some time in February. Yeah. So with that in mind, let's go back to part one. Shorn of the salacious allegations, Roman's motion alleges that the indictment is invalid and void because Wade helped get that indictment and Willis lacked the authority to appoint Wade as a special prosecutor. So let's unpack the two arguments that Roman gives as to why Willis lacked the authority to appoint Wade as a special prosecutor. I'm going to start with the second one first, because that is that Wade, quote, never filed his oath of office prior to beginning work on this case. So he was never duly authorized under Georgia law to serve in his role as special prosecutor. This is an alleged violation of Georgia law 45-3-7, which says, before proceeding to act, all deputies shall take the same oaths as their principals take, and the oaths shall be filed and entered on the minutes of the same office with the same endorsement thereon. Yeah, this is one of those like sovereign citizen, you know, like there wasn't a, it's the admiralty flag or it's got the yellow fringe <laughs> or whatever. It's, it's stupid. Ken Chesbro, the, you know, the, the coup lawyer made this argument before, back in August, before he pled out. On October 6th, Judge McAfee didn't just deny Chesbro's motion. He he actually ridiculed it. He said, first, the fo- motion fails to establish that this code section is even relevant to special ADA Wade. Explicitly, the requirements, quote, shall not apply to any deputy who may be employed in particular cases only. That, Oops. <laughs> yeah. That citation is to the rest of the statute, 4537. Judge McAfee goes on. Defendant's motion recognizes this exception, but then blithely moves on without adequately explaining why it should not apply or why this exception would not prevail as the more specific statute over any other statutory provisions referencing a deputy's oath. Yeah. And as bad as that was by the cheese, Roman's motion is even worse. It does not even cite to 4537, right, which this judge has said is the operative law regarding the potential oath that Wade was you know, ostensibly required to take. Instead... Uh, it cites to the next section, 45.3.8, and they cite it for the proposition that, I, I swear I'm not making this up, no officer or deputy required by law to take and file the oaths prescribed herein shall enter upon the duties of his office without first taking and filing the same in the proper office, end of quote. But, like, that doesn't help you answer the question of whether Wade was required to take and file the oath, right? Like, And, and this court has already suggested, no, he didn't have to. Right. And even if Wade like had to take this oath and he hadn't done it, the technical violation isn't going to get the case dismissed. That's that's ridiculous. As Judge McAfee said, even assuming special ADA Wade has not been employed to handle particular cases only, Georgia statute 45310 provides that the official acts of an officer shall be valid regardless of his admission to take and file the oath, except in cases where so specially declared. So. One might think distinguishing this safe harbor provision would be central to the defendant's argument. One would be wrong. (laughs) Ouch. So, yeah, look, what Judge McAfee is saying is that from the perspective of the criminal defendant, we're not going to let you out on a technicality if it turns out that the person who helped get the indictment against you, you know, failed to dot all the I's and cross all the T's, right? Like, if it seemed like valid process to you, as long as it didn't interfere with your rights, then... We're going to treat it as valid process. And if you're wondering whether Roman's motion distinguishes or even cites to this safe harbor provision of uh, 45-3-10, the answer is no. Right. So half of the argument for dismissing the indictment is not only something that this court has held to be completely without merit, but it didn't even respond to the points that Judge McAfee made when he said that it was completely without merit. And all Roman's brief does is asserts in a footnote, this is footnote 14, that, quote, Mr. Roman understands and acknowledges that this issue was raised by other defendants in prior filings, and the court has rejected the argument in the context of their arguments. Mr. Roman raises it herein again to show the court that, standing alone, it may seem like a technicality, but in the larger context of the various issues surrounding his appointment, Willis's lack of authority to appoint him, and the conflict of interest issues addressed below, the fact that Wade did not file his oath before beginning work takes on new and more significant meaning, and indeed constitutes a structure defect in the indictment. And, you know, that just doesn't respond to the legal concerns the court had with this argument the first time around. Yeah, it's sort of silly. Like zero plus zero does not equal two. (laughs) Right. But that leaves the other grounds for dismissal, which which is that D.A. Willis allegedly failed to obtain 
prior approval from Fulton County to hire Wade as a special prosecutor. The evidence that Willis did not get approval from Fulton County is that Roman's lawyer went through the minutes of the Fulton County Board of Commissioners and could not find a specifically authorized contract between the county and Wade. But Roman does not cite any particular provision of the Georgia Code saying that you need such a contract. In, instead, the law Roman cites is OCGA Section 151820, which says the district attorney in each judicial circuit may employ such additional assistant district attorneys and other employees or independent contractors as may be provided for by local law or as may be authorized by the governing authority of the county or counties comprising the judicial circuit. Yeah, this is really in the weeds, but the law that Roman cites to is OCGA 15-18-20. And that's one of these that says the district attorney in each judicial circuit, which would include Fonnie Willis, may hire assistant district attorneys or other independent contractors as authorized by law. And their compensation is to be fixed either by a local act, right, a, a local ordinance, or by the district attorney, quote, with the approval of the county or counties comprising the judicial circuit. Now, Roman's lawyer reads this as saying that Willis had to get permission from the county in advance before hiring Wade, but the law doesn't quite say that, right? It just says that they may employ independent contractors if authorized by law. And then, right, subsection B says that their pay is fixed either by local ordinance or by approval of the county. It does not say in advance. And making it worse for Roman's argument, Rule 42.1 of the Uniform Rules of the Superior Courts of Georgia says that Special assistant district attorneys appointed by the district attorney, including attorneys from personnel of public agencies, may prosecute criminal cases. That's it. End of. Right. That's that's all that the court rules specify. So I should add one more piece that immediately after saying that no documentation exists of any contract between Fulton County and Nathan Wade, Roman's lawyer claims that Willis, quote, violated Section 102-82 of the Fulton County laws by not obtaining the approval of the Board of Commissioners. And that seems to be a straight up misreading of local law. So I, I, I beg your indulgence a, a little bit more. I know we're deep in the weeds. That provision says selection of outside counsel, the selection of outside counsel to represent the county, any elected or appointed officer or official, employee, board, agency or office, shall be made by the Board of Commissioners upon consultation with and recommendation from the Fulton County attorney, right? And that law is very clearly a requirement that applies when the county hires outside counsel to represent the county or one of its employees or agencies as a client in litigation. I know because I've done that kind of work for Baltimore County and Baltimore City before, right? Like that's not at all applicable to private special prosecutors. Okay. So to summarize, first of all, we have salacious arguments about Willis and Wade that, if true, show exceptionally poor judgment. Number two, Willis's comments do appear to confirm this relationship. She's, she's not denied it, right? She's, she said he's qualified to do it, and she said, well, we've already discussed what she said. Right. Number three, the law does not seem to entitle Roman or Trump, who is certainly going to join this motion, to dismiss the indictment, even if Wade was not legally appointed or the the flag had a fringe or it didn't have a fringe or whatever. <laughs> right. And finally, the two arguments that Wade's appointment was illegal are not particularly well-founded. Right. So that's part one. Let's turn briefly to part two, which are the conflict of interest claims, Right. The local ordinance is the Fulton County Code of Laws. It's section 2-66 at SEC. It prohibits actual and perceived conflicts of interest by county officers and employees. And there is a companion statewide law that, that would be interpreted similarly. And what we're doing is we're looking to the purpose of statements. And section 2-68, for example, says officers and employees shall avoid even the appearance of a conflict of interest. An appearance of a conflict of interest exists when a reasonable person would conclude from the surrounding circumstances that the ability of the officer or employee to protect the public interest or impartially perform a public duty is compromised by financial or personal interests in the matter or transaction. The appearance of a conflict of interest can exist even in the absence of an actual conflict of interest, which exists whenever the officer or employee knows or should know that he or she has an interest that may be affected by his or her official acts or actions. So 
There's no specific remedy for violations of these general purpose of statutes, but if true, I think the court will take an interest in remedying the appearance of a potential conflict of interest. The law on this doesn't seem to help Roman much. The principal case cited in his brief is a 2005 intermediate appellate decision called Whitworth v. State. And you can tell there aren't good cases because this decision affirmed a defendant's conviction despite claims of a disqualifying conflict of interest, right? And if he could have found a better case, he'd have cited it. <laughs> yeah. And the conflict in that case is pretty close to what Roman is alleging here. Yeah, let's unpack that briefly. Whitworth was chairman of the paroles board. He was prosecuted for and convicted of bribery by a private parole company, right? The prosecutor in that case, in his case, was Tom Morgan. One of the witnesses that Tom Morgan called on behalf of the state was a paroles board employee named Linda Thompson. Thompson, in turn, had sued and was negotiating a settlement with the paroles board, and the firm that represented her was a firm by the name of Balch and Bingham. Okay, I, I know a lot of names, but but here's where the conflict argument comes in. The prosecutor, Tom Morgan, had, at the time of trial, an undisclosed, right, had an agreement that was not made public to join the firm of Balch and Bingham after Whitworth's trial. And mm -hmm. in fact, he did, right? So he convicted Whitworth, left, went into private practice with the firm. So Whitworth says, look, Balch and Bingham, that law firm, effectively had an unfair personal interest in making sure that I was convicted. And by the way, then that flows through to the prosecutor, right? And so therefore, he should have been disqualified. He wasn't, so I get a new trial. So, I, okay, not quite the same, but pretty similar argument to the argument Roman's making here. Yeah, it's uh, that's not great, Bob. <laughs> yeah. But the appellate court did not see it Whitworth's way, right? That, that court summarized the legal standard, right, for establishing a disqualifying conflict of interest as where the prosecutor previously has represented the defendant with respect to the offense charged or has consulted with the defendant in a professional capacity with regard thereto. Such conflict has also been held to arise where the prosecutor has acquired a personal interest or stake in the defendant's conviction. And then it differentiated prosecutors from the judge and the jury that are held to a higher standard, right? The court said the prosecuting officer is not a judicial officer. Those who are required to exercise judicial functions in the case are the judge and the jury. The public prosecutor is necessarily a partisan in the case. If he were compelled to proceed with the same circumspection as the judge and jury, there would be an end to the conviction of criminals. Right. Because let's be clear. It's not that Fonnie Willis has a conflict of interest with her own prosecutor, right? It's, you know, they're both on the prosecution team. They both would like to convict Roman. Roman's interests are not compromised here. It's the public purse that's compromised, right? Because she's awarded a contract to somebody and she's not in an arm's length relationship with the person that she's rewarded that oh, she's awarded the contract to, right? So it's not like this conflict impinges upon Roman's interest or any of the defendant's interests. The interest that that's harmed here is is the public fisc. Right. And so Roman just asserts in, at the end of page 25, going on to page 26, that both Willis and Wade have acquired a personal interest and stake in Mr. Roman's conviction. And, you know, he's doing that to quote the language of the opinion. But right. that makes no sense as a matter of Georgia law, right? Like, at, at, as you just pointed out, Wade is being paid to litigate the case, right? Maybe he got that improperly. But now that he's in, he gets paid whether the DA's office wins or loses, right? right? I, I, he doesn't have a personal interest as that is defined under Georgia law. And Willis, right, that's why I read that second part, she was elected to her position. She's always had an overriding personal interest in convicting defendants. That's what prosecutors do. That's how they get reelected. So, right. yeah, bottom line, should Willis, if it, if it exists, should should she have disclosed her personal relationship with Wade to the DA's office before recommending the hire? Absolutely. 100%, right? I mean, I would suggest that she shouldn't have hired him in the first place. Yeah. yeah and she should have she should have recused herself from that decision making process. Right. Said, hey, I think the best person to come in here is Nathan Wade. And he and I are very close. So I want somebody who's disinterested to make that decision. And I'll abide by whatever the office says. Well, or, or just not hired at all. There's strong suggestion that he 
hasn't had the experience. Like the other two prosecutors have very different resumes from Wade, let's say. Yeah. So with that in mind, will Judge Scott McAfee disqualify Wade? I I would say 100%, right? Like I, I can't envision a scenario in which Wade gets to stay on the case. Will he disqualify Willis? I would say I think that's probably more likely than not right now and um if if the events are as they appear to be right and that would be a severe blow right like fonnie willis is the person with the rico experience right that we've been talking about since day one well and it's not just that right if she's if she's recused from this and they put the prosecutor from another county in charge it's probably not going to be somebody who's all that interested in prosecuting Donald Trump and and his you know buddies for election interference right this is a republican state there's a lot of republican prosecutors here i do not know what will happen to this case but i don't think it's going to be good and and this is one of the reasons which i feel like i don't want to be hard on fonnie willis but this is a prosecution which she has acknowledged i mean she talked a lot about you know god has chosen me in this time and i'm an imperfect vessel in that speech but Try not to be so imperfect. You know, there's a lot at stake here. And if this prosecution gets put in the hands of somebody who shit cans it because they're a Republican ally or a MAGA, you know, some MAGA prosecutor, you know, that's bad. Yeah, I, I hear you on all of that. I would just say I think we at least know where the outer perimeter of where this motion will land is, right? And that would be with the disqualification of Willis and the substitution of somebody else who, you know, may be worse for all the reasons that that you have described. The idea that this, you know, that Roman or Trump is going to get the case dismissed as a result of these allegations is that's not going to happen. Yeah, that solves it. Bullshit. Good luck there. (laughs) All right. Well, I couldn't end on anything better than that. So, uh, Liz, thanks for being here today. Thank you. See you guys. All right. We'll see you in a couple days. You got into Harvard Law? What, like it's hard? This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Liz. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash law. If you can't support us financially, it would be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use and be sure to tell all your friends about us for questions suggestions and complaints email us at openarguments at gmail.com the show notes and links are on our website at openargs.com be sure to follow us on twitter at openargs this podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC, with assistance from Teresa Gomez and Deborah Smith. Copyright 2023, Opening Arguments Media, LLC, all rights reserved.